Hello, fellow OCD warriors. I'm Christina Orlova, your host on the OCD Whisperer podcast, your trusted companion in the battle against OCD. If you're like me and understand the struggles of living with OCD, then you're in the right place. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about something incredible. Get your OCD survival kit today at www.onlineocdacademy.com. It's filled with amazing resources to aid you in all things OCD, whether you're on a tight budget or just looking to supercharge your progress. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to OCD Whisperer Show. Today with me, I have two incredible guests. One is Dr. Noah DeGaetano, who is a board-certified psychiatrist and the chief medical officer of Acacia Mental Health in Sunnyvale, California. He has been practicing since 2005 and has extensive experience treating patients with both conventional and accelerated transcranial magnetic stimulation, TMS. Prior to joining Acacia, he founded and directed the TMS program at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, Sutter Health. He completed medical school and psychiatric training at the Aiken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City and has served as an instructor in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford School of Medicine. Next, I also have Dr. Ryan Vadreen, who is an interventional psychiatrist with expertise treating OCD and anxiety disorders. He completed residency training at UC San Francisco, was director of OCD services at one of the largest interventional group practices in the country, and has years of experience delivering medication, psychotherapy, and brain stimulation treatments. Additionally, he has experience and training using ketamine and psychedelic-assisted therapies. Through all of these modalities, Dr. Vadreen works with clients to help them live their most authentic, free, and vibrant life. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So you both have incredible expertise in something that I know currently people with OCD really want to know about. I know that Dr. Degaitano, we just actually briefly spoke a little bit about accelerated TMS, which is uh, kind of a newer, more updated treatment with TMS services. And I don't know that people really know that much about the more kind of updated. So I would love to kind of, if all right, start off with having you tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. I'm happy to talk about it. So regular TMS, which some people are familiar with, is using a strong magnet, about half the strength of an MRI machine, to stimulate the brain networks. And this can be really effective for both major depression, and it also has an FDA indication for obsessive compulsive disorder. So what happened a few years ago, namely with Nolan Williams at Stanford University and School of Medicine, was that uh, he thought that maybe we're underdosing TMS, essentially. And also, one of the things that's you know challenging, I think, about all treatments, medication and TMS included, is that it can take um, with TMS, you know, two months to to finish the treatment. And uh, as you know, with medications with OCD, sometimes you have to go out to three months to really see the full effect of a treatment. And so, you know, that's a long time to, to wait, especially when you're suffering and you're worried if it's going to work, it's not going to work. So he had an idea, well, let's let's increase the dose. Let's give a lot more in a shorter amount of time. And he was thinking actually very interestingly that he would even use learning theory. So it was actually shown that like the optimal window that you could give TMS and get, you know, uh, an increased effect was you needed to let the person rest for about an hour and then you could dose again and you would get an even better effect, like more neuroplasticity, more neuroplastic changes. And so he basically did this 10 treatments a day for five day approach 
And it turned out to be, you know, in a paper that was published in, both in 2020 and 2022, to be one of the most effective approaches to major depressive disorder. Um, and so in our clinic, we, we offer that, but this is a, a podcast about OCD and, and we have been um, a- adapting that accelerated approach with the same 10 treatments a day for five days with OCD, both using the brainsway machine, which is a, a broader stimulation, mostly kind of in the middle of the head on the on what's called the medial prefrontal cortex and anterior cingulate cortex. And then also Nolan Williams again and, and his and his lab did a more focal treatment where they were treating the orbital frontal cortex, which is a little lower down, kind of over the eye, uh, with the same um, 10 treatments a day and, and having some uh, success with that. And that's a little different in that you get a functional MRI. So you kind of look at the wiring of the brain and uh, tailor it to the specific person. Um, and so it seems like both of these approaches um, really have some promise. That's incredible. Dr. Vadrine, I know that you've also done some TMS work. Is there anything else you'd like to add or expand on? Yeah, I think it's nice that this is an option. I mean, I think there's still some people where they don't have five days to leave and and once a day they can squeeze in somewhere and, you know, it's slower and it it takes longer, but there's insurance coverage and that's kind of been around. Um, This is nice because I have lots of people often in really distressed place that are kind of willing to go anywhere and do anything to get better fast. So accelerate as an option. Noah, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the one thing for people to know too is insurance coverage is kind of still often a piece of this um, and getting them to try to cover the newer protocols may be challenging, but. That's absolutely right. You know, things are in the works on the depression side. I am confident in the next few years, we're going to see some coverage, but remember reading one study that was like an average of, of seven years between FDA approval and the insurers actually covering things. So. Hopefully it's going to be faster than that because this is such an important treatment. And, you know, I think one of the things to highlight with speed is is not only that sometimes it's easier to take a week off than plan like, you know, a part of your day for eight weeks, but also sometimes that's the difference between losing a job or not, or losing a relationship or not, or, you know, in the worst cases, uh, taking your life or trying to hurt yourself or not. And so, you know, time can be a really big deal in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking about also just clinically from, you know, clients I've treated and and even talking with other colleagues. I mean, when we're talking about when things are really bad, I mean, you know, people will do intensive out, outpatient programs, which are typically a classic one is a three-week program where, you know, you're meeting five, four to five days a week, three hours a day. So, you know, the reality is that, yeah, like some of these will require time, but here you're talking about five days, not even a three-week IOP program, but five days, which kind of sounds pretty incredible, really. And I don't know the cost of it. I'm pretty sure my listeners right now are are probably wondering that. So can we actually kind of address that elephant in the room? What is the cost? Yeah, yeah, it varies. So we have a financial aid program um, here at our clinic. So the cost can, you know, vary from less than, you know, 10,000 to, uh, you know, more multiples of that, um, depending on the specific mm-hmm. type of, of treatment that someone might be getting and their financial situation. So we, we do try to meet people where they're at, but it is not covered by insurance. And so, you know, it's, it, it can be um, costly, but, you know, when you weigh that sometimes against, you know, what is the cost to your life or what is the cost in terms of even, you know, keeping your job or not keeping your job or, or things like that, or, or all the things that the other things that you've tried or could try, 
you know, when they've actually, interestingly enough, when they've looked at dream, brain, um, deep brain stimulation for OCD, for example, which is very expensive, it's brain surgery, it, it is still a cost of effective treatment when you compare it to some other modalities. So even very expensive things can be cost effective. And that's why we have to convince insurers that they should pay for things that work for people <laughs> where they've tried everything else and it's not working because that's the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just important to know that, right? Like financially, that's what we hear from people all the time, right? The amount of money that goes into treatment and treatment is not, it's not like it's, you know, just 50 bucks and, you know, you're done. Like it, it is, it is an investment of your time and, and of your finances. So of course it makes sense. You want to do things that, you know, are going to help and work. And, and I think having options, and that's really what you're bringing in the room today is like, oh, here's another option and an updated option, which really sounds great. and again, like everything else in life, right? Everybody has to make that decision. But financially, if you if you guys offer financial aid and really work with people, I mean, that's great news to hear. In terms of insurance, of course, right? They always take forever. <laughs> well, it's worth saying too, right? Like a lot of people that are considering this are often doing out-of-network exposure-based therapy with a specialist twice a week. I mean, you will burn through several thousand dollars over the course of several months, right? And not to say you won't still be doing some therapy after TMS, but to Noah's point, it is a lot more upfront, but it may actually save you in, in, in the long run. So would you say like with accelerated TMS, what kind of results can then, I guess, can somebody get within five days? So, you know, I have to stress that this is new. So we're talking about like the last year at our clinic that we've been using this. And so I'll point to some of the studies. So in, in Nolan uh, Williams pilot at Stanford, for example, at their 14-day mark, which was the first time point, it was only seven patients, but you know, 57% of uh, basically four out of the seven had responded. And then I think they followed them out to a month, I want to say, and still three out of the seven had responded. And one was like just a couple percentage points away from responding. So, you know, more than half. So obviously that's a small group of people. We want to see trials with much more and they're doing that now. If that, you know, basic statistic holds, that's good. And and when you look at conventional, you know, OCD treatment with TMS, even in the, you know, really rigorous randomized control trials, you're looking about uh, at a 45% response rate for people who are treatment resistant. They've tried other medications, they've tried psychotherapy, you know, and on average, you know, the studies go between 50% to 60%, but somewhere around that are not going to respond to medications and psychotherapy, right? So it's not an insignificant number of people with OCD. And that if you could then have, you know, about half of those people or a little less than half respond, um, that's a big deal, right? And the interesting thing too, is that when you look out farther, they did one study past a month, all the way out to um, 10 weeks. So that's like two and a half months. People continue to do better than placebo, the people that got the treatment. So it seems like it's almost like somehow the ball got rolling. So, and this is this whole interesting world of neuroplasticity, which kind of brings us into, you know, discussion of psychedelics and other things like that, which is like, what is happening that's still at 10 weeks, they're still getting better, you know, gradually, like what change did we make in the brain? How is the brain maybe more receptive, maybe more flexible? And so now the therapy you're doing or the meds that you're also taking are getting more traction. And I've heard that's the most amazing thing about TMS. I, I, I talk and Ryan and has had this experience too, this sort of magic window after TMS, which is like, you know, TMS is, I say, you know, is a bridge 
Um, it is not the whole answer. And so it, it's like you have a different brain after you've had TMS. And now you really have an opportunity, maybe, you know, and I've heard people say either like, oh, I was hearing the, the therapist say something, but it, it didn't really resonate with me. And now I kind of get it. Like I feel it in my bones mm -hmm. or I knew what I needed to do, but I just couldn't get myself to do it. And now I am. So it's like something is different, even though the information and the work the therapist is doing with them is the same. And so that's really interesting. And I think psychedelics have, you know, potentially that obviously the same opportunity, because as we know with psychedelics, you know, uh, if you look at MDMA, which being tried for PTSD, the FDA indication is literally, it requires therapy, right? It's, it's not an approval of the drug. It's an approval of the drug plus therapy. You have to do them together. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I love that you naturally kind of segue there. So can we, like, if that's all right, can we actually switch and talk a little bit about that as well, right? Because these are the, the kind of more novel therapeutic things out there for OCD. So yeah, sorry, Dr. Rodrin. Oh, no, I was just going to add the very similar experience of people. Uh, we have we have some patients who respond to CMAS, some who don't. Of the ones that do, they do often continue to look better even after the treatment. So I, I use the same phrasing of getting the ball rolling with them a lot. And I think there's just the one last piece I would add to that, that that I think is interesting is the exposure therapy piece. Noah was talking about like people sort of respond better, but people will talk about I can resist compulsions better or I have these obsessions, but it's like I can push them back a little bit and not have to attend to them. And it was a real question for a while with with TMS of like, do we what if we pair it with exposures? Do we need to pair it with exposures? The initial trial did do that, um, but there was no head-to-head -head group like proving that you needed those exposures. And then there's been more that has come out since that actually suggests doing an exposure with TMS and actually doing it at an intensity that that really you know activates that circuitry actually probably does work better. And that was kind of intuitive, I think, what some of us assumed and thought. But so it really actually may enhance exposure therapy, and I like to talk about it in that particular way with patients routinely. Awesome. And so if we with TMS like let's talk about the other things too, sure. right? Like there's ketamine, you mentioned MDMA, there's, we, people obviously know psilocybin. So, and I've certainly had folks reach out to me directly asking me, you know, to talk a little bit about, you know, or, or even sharing that they do sometimes take a microdose of psilocybin and that seems to help. And I know recently at the international CD conference, there was a training on this. So yeah, can we kind of dive into that a little bit? Like, what does current research say? Where are we with this? And any anything else you both maybe, you know, can contribute clinically or otherwise? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a super exciting area that I know both of us are, are pretty interested in. There was just a recent article that I'm going to forget the name that came out about, I think, like the scientist who takes people's brains back to childhood. It was, I think, something of the title, but talking about like these substances, MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine, all have something they seem to do this kind of critical period, which is again, similar to what we were just talking about that maybe TMS does, right? Where things are different, they're unstuck. You can learn something in a different way. You can see something in a different way. And again, that, that it really allows you to use the other stuff again. So it's not take this drug and that's it. Everything's done, but it, it opens you up to be able to do something kind of different. So in OCD, the, there are at least three, and there might be a fourth. I know psilocybin or magic mushroom trials for OCD happening. I don't believe they have concluded and published that evidence yet. Um, so we're kind of waiting. It, you know, we have all of this evidence, MDMA and PTSD, um, psilocybin and depression, psilocybin with anxiety and existential distress and cancer patients, 
So we have the stuff, there's case reports, there's some evidence, we've all had patients who've tried it, but in terms of like solid evidence and FDA indications, we're, we're eagerly waiting to see what these, these uh, randomized trials will show. Okay, anything else that you know of or you wanna add in there, Dr. Baitano? Yeah, no, I, I agree with Ryan. You know, I think the last kind of looking at different doses of psilocybin that was well controlled was nine patients was back in 2006. So, you know, it's mm. it's been a long time coming that we need some more some more studies and especially some blinded studies, which are tough, right? You know, when you're dealing with psilocybin, you know, how do you, you know, make someone think that they, you know, got the drug when they didn't? So a lot of times what they're doing now is, is low dose psilocybin and high dose psilocybin, essentially, and using psilocybin as the control for this, you know, placebo controlled um, trial, which is kind of considered the gold standard in medicine. I don't think it's always the best method um, in every case, but it is it is still a very good and important thing to do. There was an interesting recent study, an online survey of people just self-reporting their, their experiences. And there was about 270 patients, I think, that answered it. And, and psilocybin was really the treatment that rose to the top in terms of people's experience of feeling like it was helpful and so I certainly think it, it it garners more interest. There was also an interesting study that came out about two factors. They compared Lexapro, which is an antidepressant, an SRI, and psilocybin. Um, both of them had, and they were looking at um, thought suppression. So like trying to ignore thoughts that are uncomfortable uncom to you or press them down. And then also um, rumination. So how much you sort of repetitively think negative thoughts. And um, Lexapro helped with rumination, but psilocybin seemed to help a little bit more. And Lexapro did not help with thought suppression. And it seemed like the psilocybin did. So, you know, when we start to get really granular, it's interesting. And it's all, and the durability, you know, is interesting too. When you see in depression, like there's some of these, you know, studies where people have taken one dose, you know, they've done the therapy with it, and then they've taken a second dose. And then that's kind of it. They're not tanked taking meds on a regular basis, and they might have months of improvement from that, sometimes as long as a year. So that is a different paradigm, I think. And again, you know, that the psychotherapy is, is an integral part of that, I think is very interesting. So I'm, yeah, I can't wait to see what these studies show. And it just... It's also interesting too, because the psilocybin is this idea of transdiagnostic, right? Like it could help with depression, help with, you know, they're looking at eating disorders, smoking, you know, and, and so it gets to the point that um, we have the DSM and we, we have these different diagnoses, which are based on um, symptoms and behaviors, but really there are these other ways to think about the brain as networks, things like the default mode network, right? Your sense of self, your ego. And there's this whole idea with psilocybin that there's this like dissolving of the ego. And you can actually see on the fMRI that there are brain networks in this default network that get kind of loosened up and they're more flexible. And so on an intuitive level, it makes sense. Like, oh, I'm not trying, like I'm able to tolerate like these different uncomfortable feelings a little bit more. I don't need to suppress those thoughts. I don't need to use thought suppression. I'm a little bit more okay with like life being, you know, having, having different textures and different, you know, um, qualities to it and not needing to control it as much. So I think it's just fascinating. Yeah. The way that the, the neuroscience and, and the subjective experiences and, and the way we think about disorders uh, in, in mental health is, is converging. 
Yeah. So that's a lot of cool stuff you shared. And I, I know I always hold kind of the listener in my mind and, and I know anybody listening now, I know you just can feel it. Like they're going to be like, okay, that's great. So what do I do in the meantime? Like, so what dose do I get? Right. Cause people always want to come back to, you know, why does this matter to me? Right. How's it going to impact me? How can I get better? Like now? Right. Cause that's all we all ever want. Right. So I can imagine somebody going, Christina ask them like, what's the dose? What could I take? Should I take it? What do I do? Right. So I, I granted, I have to right now put the disclaimer to anybody listening, right? These are psychiatrists. They are licensed people. This is not advice for you medically or clinically or otherwise. I just got to say it one more time. So whatever we're talking about, we're, we're just talking more for education purposes and information. And so with that statement, what would you say to that question? <laughs> I have some thoughts and, and Noah jump in, but I mean, this comes up all the time. We're, we're both practicing in the Bay Area where this is readily available for a lot of people. I'll first off say like, I don't think from a clinician perspective, particularly a psychiatrist at this point that you can say, or that it's right to say, that's an illegal thing. We can't talk about it. We don't, we don't treat any other drugs or alcohol or any other stuff like that. Right. So while it's not legal in a lot of ways, and we can't recommend it currently, we can certainly talk about people who have decided to use this and, and what are harm reduction strategies. What does the research show? How has it been done in a way that, you know, helps, I think, keep people safe if they've already decided they're going to go and, and try this. So I think the, you brought up microdosing. Like, I think that's really interesting. It's not what's been most studied so far. Um, so right now we don't know. Um, I think there was one thing that basically it kind of came out as equal to placebo in, in the, the study that I saw looking at the microdosing. I think that was in depression. That I think largely remains to be seen and is a lot of anecdotal reporting. Um, what mostly has been tested are higher dose sessions of psilocybin with some sort of supervision guide therapist. And usually that's going to range from somewhere around like two to four grams of psilocybin, roughly, I'd say in some of those studies, that's considered high, whereas microdosing tends to be certainly less than a gram um, and often less than even a, a half gram. So that's kind of what's been done. It's in a safe, therapeutic, contained environment with someone who's not on the drug sitting with you and making sure that you have contact with kind of someone in reality that, that you're in a safe space. You're not going to do something that hurts yourself. And it's always, uh, or at least so far is studied with some sort of preparatory session, right? With a therapist or a guide where you're not on the drug, where you're talking about expectations, where you're talking about what are you comfortable with in the room? Do you want someone to put a hand on you if you're really scared or do you not want to be touched, right? That, that comes up a lot. And then after the session, a lot of what we call integration and kind of processing. So what did you experience? What was really important? What do you want to keep with you? So that that's the setting that this has mostly been studied in. So it's very contained. It's very therapeutic. It's structured. It's not kind of on a whim going out on your own and, and doing this. That may be helpful. A lot of a lot of the people in the research, you know, we would like to see a trial done out in nature. We think that that might even be better, but that's really hard to control for. So from what we know now, that's the setting it's been done in. And that's the setting that we can kind of take something from. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And since, you know, since the 1960s, when they were first doing research on this, there was this idea of set and setting, right? And so every research uh, trial that's been done at a reputable place since then has, has really adhered to that. Um, so what Ryan was saying about 
the setting. So it being a calm setting, a comfortable setting, often having both a male and a female guide with you for, for the entire duration, going over what's going to happen, really preparing the person. And then, and then the set is kind of the mindset. So um, what are the person's expectations about the experience? What are they worried about? What do they want to work on? How can we, you know, address some of those issues? How can we really know and let them know what all the bumps in the road are going to be and how we're going to deal with it during the session if something comes up and, you know, what an optimal session, you know, what the parameters are. And so like preparing the mind and having that scaffolding in place and really skillfully then integrating the experience is, seems to be really critical. Um, to having a positive experience. And I will just tell you anecdotally from patients that have come to me who have kind of just done something on the side or privately, like I haven't seen people say, oh, I've had a great experience. I mean, there will be people I'm sure who are listening to this who said, oh, I, I had a great experience and, and it didn't involve any kind of therapist. So there's always exceptions, but in general, my experience has been with folks that have come to me, um, many of whom have tried this independently, that I'm not impressed, honestly, by how, uh, you know, and, and people haven't been that impressed. They've told me about it, like, oh my gosh, this is miraculous. So I, I do think that a lot of the design and everything wrapped around the, the medication is is probably important. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that I've I've definitely had some folks who opened up and talked also, you know, variations like the kind of strand and the kind of which what are you and like you said the amount and the time and the where and and kind of learning what impacts you and what you respond better to or less than because sometimes people say, oh, I actually have a lot of insights that I got. And that really helped me. And some people are like, oh, whatever it was, instead of insights, I got anxiety and I was having some visual experiences that I didn't necessarily maybe want. So all of that is part of really what we're talking about. And so that makes sense then to sounds like, you know, wait longer and see, but I really do also appreciate just hearing, well, what do we currently know? And just from both of you, like, what have you also heard just from patients and people? Because I mean, we're human, people are still going to do things you know, behind closed doors, different things. And, you know, I'm always a fan of, let's just be honest. I mean, we know it's happening, so it, it, we don't have to pretend and lie. We're not calling anybody out, but let's at least like, you know, Dr. Regine, you mentioned, like talk about how it can do things in a way that can be, you know, more like harm reduction and and considering safety, right? Because that's really most important at the end of it. I kind of think of it as, as a tiered thing, starting with like, what was the trial design, right? So I've had people who come and they say, look, I'm not asking you to condone this, but like, I'm going to go do this. And people can, depending on where you live, find, find people who, who act as guides, who act as therapists. It's a little hard to know who's who, because, because this is all underground, right? Or, or something, right? So it's, it's just hard to know what you're getting into. I've had people have a partner or spouse sit with them, right? So if that's what they're going to do, okay, that's better than nothing. And, and I, I would recommend that your spouse not be on the drug as well, right? So again, having as much safety as you're going to put in place if you're deciding to go go do this on your own. I, I, the other thing actually that comes up often too, which I've had to deal with is what do I do with my medications? So I would say historically, a lot of patients are on SSRIs and this was at the very least a theoretical concern um, about, well, what if we mix this with other things that affect the serotonin? serotonin syndrome? Is that dangerous? Are we going to cause serotonin syndrome? And 
I've had a couple of patients who made the decision to do this outside. And so we decided to go off their meds in the past. And that can be incredibly challenging period for some of them, particularly if symptoms are already quite severe, right? So there's been at least two, and no, you may know of more, but at least two publications I've seen now where they've actually dosed people on their SSRI. So they didn't take them off meds and, and there were not adverse outcomes um, in those studies. And so the I think a lot of times the question is, does that change the experience? Does the medicine competing for the same receptors maybe blunt the overall experience you can have in psychedelics? That's probably more common than, than something terribly dangerous. But there is some evidence then that actually you don't have to be completely off meds to be able to receive this. And so that'll be interesting to kind of follow further and see how can you optimize that. But um, that's just something that is worth knowing that we didn't always have access to. So. Awesome. Okay. Well, I know that I've definitely kept both of you for the entirety of the length of my show. And I know anybody listening now, I'm pretty confident there's more questions. I certainly have more questions, but we might need to have you back for a round two. But for today's episode, first of all, I just want to thank you for your time, for your knowledge, for kind of just being open and, and you know, having this conversation. I'm pretty confident everybody's going to find it useful. Um, and in the meantime, if folks want to find you, how can they find you, Dr. Gaetano? So I'm at Acacia Mental Health, which is uh, acaciaclinics.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn, not on social media otherwise. But awesome. I'll put that in the I show notes. Be, but. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, but no. <laughs> and Dr. Badrine? My website is ryanvmd.com and I'm at ryanvmd on uh, Instagram, Facebook, that kind of stuff. So. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for coming. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us on the OCD Whisper podcast. Remember, your path to freedom from OCD, it's a journey. Visit www.onlineocdacademy.com for self-help masterclasses that fit your journey, your pace, and your budget. We understand that not everybody can afford a specialist, and that's why we're here to provide accessible resources. Subscribe, rate, and share. And together, we can overcome the challenges of OCD. Stay strong, and we'll catch you on the next episode.